Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. Chapter 8 is a very important chapter because it's God bringing his case to conclusion. It's a summary of what God, the anger that God has had towards his people. Now, now obviously, if you see this and if you hear this, and after I read the entire chapter almost, you, you kind of sense this, like, harshness. This is anger. This is God being upset. And, and at times, it's a little bit uncomfortable because... We can ask ourselves, where's the comfort in that? Where, why am I in church if God is angry with me? You know, like why, why even come to church or why even be a part of a, of a community that, that has an angry God all the time? And we can't forget. That's why it's important to read the Bible because throughout all these eight chapters, if you've been here for a couple of weeks and the months that we've, that we've studied this, You've come to know that God has already set up warnings. God has already set up grace. God has already set up a proper way for him to be pleased. And you have to remember, this is Old Testament. There was a certain way Israel needed to please God. It was prescribed to them a certain way to please God. It's simple. It's do this. And live. Do this, and God is pleased. So when Israel does the opposite and rebels against God, then it becomes more understandable to learn and hear God's anger because he set up, he set them, basically he set them up for success and not failure. But human hearts are the problem. And you and I know that when rules are placed before us, we tend to break the rules at every step of the way. The speed limit says 25, and you and I go 30, 35. Or I hope I'm not the only one. I hope there's no cops here that will see me after the service. Uh, it says, do not wet paint, do not touch. And immediately our re reflexes are touch. It's like we immediately rebel against not doing what we are told. And that's just, this is what we find in God's people. But we cannot avoid or, or push aside God's grace in all of this because he, he set up grace. He gave him, uh, the, the instructions throughout all time, and he not only gave instructions, he demonstrated time and time again how faithful he was. And it's still in that midst that people turned against him. And so when we see a chapter like chapter 8, it's harsh. It's, it's, it's hard to hear God coming down so hard over Israel, but we can't forget that it was Israel's cause. Israel put themselves in these places. And it's a sad thing. We've seen this marriage throughout this entire time that we've been in Hosea. It's a sad moment when one person in the marriage loses hope in the other. In a certain sense, it's, man, you're never going to change. Or, you were unfaithful to me. I'm never going to forgive you. I'm never going to forget what you've done to me. And in the marriage, it's harsh because that person, what can't that person do anymore? They can't love freely. They, they're married to that person, but they can't see them the same way. They're looking at them with suspicion at every turn. They're underneath scrutiny, and at times it's like, man, and it's sad to see, but I've seen this in, in my career as, as being on pastoral staff here at church, where parents sometimes just stay together because of the kids, but they're at each other's throat all the time. Because one person has lost faith in the other person. 
But usually when that happens, it's because somebody messed up, right? Somebody was unfaithful. Somebody was abusive. Somebody, either the husband or the wife, they're the ones that messed up. So it causes a reaction. I'm not going to be... I'm not going to believe in you anymore because you did this to me. And it's a reaction to that. But what was Israel reacting to? That's the sad part. That's the sadness in, in Hosea that, that God is perfect. He shows himself like we studied a couple weeks ago. His love, his faithfulness, his loyalty. The only thing God did to his people was show them love. What was Israel reacting to in disobedience? Why were they so against God? Why were they so bitter towards God? Why could they not just follow instructions? And one of the easy answers to this, there's a lot of theological answers to it, but one of the, the easiest understanding of this is the human condition, the human heart will always tend to rebel against God, even when God shows grace. It's hard, and it's sad, and it saddens me because it, it, it doesn't just get me to focus on the people of, of Israel, but it, it reminds me of people at church. When they lose hope in God, that's a sad day. They live their lives and and, and they grew up in church and, and they lived 10 years in church or maybe their parents brought them to church as little kids and, and then they go to college and, and they're in the universities and, and now they're entrenched with education and enlightenment and now they have a better outlook on life because, because now they're educated and it gets me sad because they've lost hope in the church. They've lost hope in God. God was the one who, who kept them this entire time, was with their families during this entire time and, and yet they've gotten to a situation in their life where they're just like, I don't need God anymore. Or, or maybe something negative happened and the person or persons just leave God and, and they lose hope. But God was never the cause of their abandonment. It's always in our heart. And that's what we learn in Hosea. It's never God's fault. It's never God's fault. And at times as people, we tend to throw the blame, but it's never God's fault. And so when we go through this today, we're going to understand this rebuke and this indictment over his people. We're going to see a mixture of Hosea's words along with God's words. And at times we can't distinguish who's speaking. Is it Hosea or is it God? But it's God through the voice of the prophet reminding his people and telling his people why God is upset. And God is closing the case here. Here's the, the hard part. God closes the case. This is the final prosecution before the jury. And he's closing the case. There's no more arguments to be said. And so we start off in verse 4 with one of the first things God goes against Israel with. The way we're going to do this chapter, we're going to break this chapter up in three parts, and then we're going to include chapters 9 and 10 to kind of reinforce God's argument. We're going to break this up in three parts, and the first part we're going to do today, and we're going to focus, if you want to write this down, we're going to focus on, verse, on the beginning of verse 4, the first two stanzas, or A and B, and then we're going to focus, focus on verses 7 through 10 of chapter 8. So that's going to be our primary objective today, where we're going to focus on this, and God is going against Israel right here on their political schemes, on their political manipulations or political allegiances. Next week, we'll cover the second part of this chapter, which is idolatry, which we find in the last part of verse 4 all the way through verse 6. And then the third part we'll cover in a couple of weeks we're going to speak about God going against them with illegitimate worship in verses 11 through 13. And then God's final rejection in verse 14. So all of those three things are combined in this one chapter, bringing this to a conclusion, bringing this to a halt. There is no more arguments to be said. God is upset, and it's Israel's fault, and they have to know it. And now 
they suffer the consequences. So we've, we've heard it in the beginning of Hosea, and now we're going to get into detail about it because we, it's good for us to understand this righteous anger. Once again, I've mentioned this before, God is not arbitrary in his judgment. He doesn't just wake up upset. There is a cause to this. God is holy and he demands justice. So one of the first aspects God zooms in on completely is on these political schemes that Israel has so much Vor- voraciously saw after, looking after with, with, with kind of a passionate hunger to align themselves with other nations, with other entities, with other politi- po- politics, and with other kings in order to support themselves. Sometimes we see them do this like we, like we saw last week. They do it, they go to them so they can be healed or for help. Other times they just want to affirm themselves or the kings at that moment just want to affirm their throne. This is a constant flirting with other nations. And if we have this marriage in the, in, in the background, this is a constant uh, lack of respect for the spouse. Can you imagine your husband or your wife uh, calling some other woman her best friend, his best friend? The wife would be like, whoa, hold on. I'm your best friend. I'm your everything. You can't have any other best friend. Like, it just doesn't make sense for, for me to say, well, I have these three other chicks that are my best friends, and I tell them everything. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. You can't align yourselves with somebody else because you're in a marriage. For some reason, Israel kept doing this time and time again. Let's read verse 4. The first two stanzas of verse 4 says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. The kings and the leaders that they chose were chosen by them. And in many cases, if you... If you read a lot of the passages that we're going to read today, you'll see that they chose themselves. A lot of the kings went up against other kings of Israel and just killed them, and then they became kings. This was not God's plan. This was incorrect leadership over Israel, and because they were uh, wrong leaders, they led Israel in a wrong way. It's obvious if if you are led by false leadership or leaders that do not lead well, you're obviously going to go and follow what they do. If, if the leadership went and worshipped the gods of Assyria or Canaanite gods, that's what the people were going to do. They followed along their leadership. And this leadership that was chosen by man, remember, not chosen by God, which is what verse 4 says, they were constantly in rebellion against God. It's incredible to see that when David was chosen king over Israel, his predecessor was King Saul. And King Saul was chosen by his people. And King Saul was said to have been disobedient to God. David failed God, but David wasn't considered disobedient towards God. As a matter of fact, Paul calls David a man after God's own heart. But Saul was chosen by the people and led his people into into false worship and and idolized the, the, the gods of other nations. And Saul disobeyed God because he was chosen by the people. When people choose their ways, it will always fail. When people try to come up with with these wonderful schemes and ideas and plans, it will always fail because God is not involved. God, what it says here, God knew it not. It's not that he didn't know about it. It's that they didn't consult him for this type of leadership. These leaders are always against God. They were chosen by people because the people thought that they can rely on their intelligence to get through. Let's, let us pick the leaders. Let us pick the kings because we make better decisions than God. We are obviously smarter than God. So let's put them there. They didn't know what they were doing. And that's what, that's what gets really hard towards, towards the uh, latter part of this 
these verses. Look at verse 7. So we see the incorrect, faulty leadership in verse 4. But look at what verse 7 says. I'm going to lean on this verse a lot because it, it, it's, it's, in the, it's like the central part of this chapter. Verse 7 says, For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. So the beginning part of verse 7 is so important because it's speaking about their political allegiance. They sow the wind, but they're going to reap the whirlwind. In the Hebrew construct, this is a negative phrase. This isn't nice poetry. Even though poetically it is interesting because the, the Hebrew word for wind is ruach. And the Hebrew word for whirlwind is sufach. So can you imagine those two words back to back? Ruach and sufach. It's like poetic. Now if you guys didn't understand anything I just said right now, it's cool. It was Hebrew. But it just sounds pretty interesting. But it, it, it's at the ends of, of the stanzas and they're rhyming. If, if you like hip hop and rap... It usually rhymes. This is Hebrew rhyming right here. But it's bringing force. And the way it says it, it's, it, it sounds devastating. Remember, ruach, it's a strong force, a strong wind. And so what they're saying is, what Hosea is saying is that they sowed the wind. Basically, they invested in a political alliance. And in many cases, these political alliances were enemies of God. So they thought they were doing something right. Because they had man-made leadership, leadership that they chose, these leaders thought, you know what, it would be better to invest ourselves in these other nations. Let's, let's bring an allegiance together. Let's, let's form an allegiance together and, 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 let's, and let's serve them and be with them. It's a better choice. Assyria is way bigger than us. And they were right. Assyria was way bigger than them. But this sowing in the wind, in the wind brings a consequence. What is the consequence? They reap the whirlwind. The whirlwind here is a negative, destructive force. It is, in our modern language, the tsunami of danger. They think that they're going to sow in the wind and bring allegiance together with other politics and with other nations. They think everything's going to be okay. God's not going to get upset. It's going to be fine. It's easy. Just, even if we do mess up, it's not a big deal. It's all right. God's cool. God says, no, they, they reap the whirlwind. They bring destruction upon Who's bringing this destruction? It's themselves. Why? Because they're sowing into the wind. And that little wind that they think they're sowing into that is okay, comes back into a tsunami of destruction. So when we read verse 7, that's what it's saying. And the, the words are carefully chosen so they can bring that sense of devastation. They thought they were having security in these other allies, but what they were doing was digging a deeper grave. The whirlwind was coming with a force of divine devastation. God has to teach his people here what they are doing is wrong. God never measures sin. Though this sin is deep and hard because they're, they're putting themselves with another nation which they were specifically told not to do. It's a devastating sin. God doesn't measure sin. It doesn't matter if they were just thinking about doing it or they actually do it. God measures the heart and he sees the sin. And that sin brings devastation. So don't, don't think for once that Israel was going to fool God. Don't think for once that we can fool God with our ingenuities or with our good plans or with our little sins. 
God, it's not a big deal, God. Like, just take it easy. Relax a little bit. No. You sow in the wind. Minor little sins that you may think exist, but you're going to reap a whirlwind. And that's what God is teaching Israel. That's what God is going to do to Israel because of what they sowed. And they have to get taught that. And we're going to see why. We're going to see Israel's sin flat out. I'm going to go through four stories with you from the Old Testament. You may have never read the books of Kings or the books of Chronicles. You may have never read the book of Hosea. But I want to go with you because I want to show you what's going on. I want to show you the detail of the sin. And unfortunately for the people that it's written about, it's in detail. Can you imagine your life being detailed out before people's to read? It would be devastating, wouldn't it? But this is placed here for us to learn so that we do not follow the ways of these kings. I'm not going to go back all the way in history because I'm going to focus on Hosea's time. I'm going to focus on four to five kings that Hosea was roughly in around that same time frame in the mid-8th century B.C. And one of the first kings we're going to focus on is King Manachem. So open your Bible. Keep, uh, keep your finger in Hosea just in case you're not too familiar with Hosea and you're going to lose your place. But open your Bible back to 2 Kings. Go a little bit back. If you've taken Henry's class on doctrine, you'll, uh, you should know your Bible books in order, memorized. And I'm going to ask Henry to pick a couple of you to come same right now in a bit. In alphabetical order, though. I'm playing. 2 Kings, chapter 15. One of the kings we're going to focus on, this is not the first king of Israel. This is 8th century Israel. And one of the kings that we're going to focus on is Manachem. And, and look at what he does. 2 Kings, chapter 15, verses 17 through 20. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah. Now, always remember this. Just, just keep this in mind. I've repeated this time and time again. Judah is in the south. Israel is in the north. There's two divided kingdoms after Saul and David. It was no longer Israel as one. It was divided. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the sons of Solomon. After that, it was just divided kingdom. So during this time in Hosea, there's a divided kingdom. And so when we read uh, Judah and Israel or Ephraim, it, it may, it, we kind of have to understand that. So once again, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menachem, the son of Gadai, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria, or Israel. That's the capital of Israel. Verse 18, and he did what was good, or does it say evil? And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all, uh, all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, which was the first king of, uh, of the north, uh, a really bad king, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Stop right there. So we got a little bit of context right here. We understand this very little bit. So we got this king who was bad. It's the bad king of Israel. Israel's kings are supposed to be good because their God is Yahweh. But right here we got a bad king. Verse 19. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land and Menachem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menachem exacted the money from Israel, that, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. All that money it's that was accumulated to give to the king of Assyria was roughly 30 tons of silver. That's a lot of money. So what's going on here? King of Assyria, King Pul, or that's his Babylonian name, Pul. Uh, and later in Chronicles, we'll read his, his Assyrian name, which was King Tiglath-Pileser III. So King Tiglath, or King Pul, which is easier to say, comes against Israel. He's coming as the Assyrian king. Remember, this big Assyrian empire is coming down over Israel. And, and this is very important because uh, a lot of universities will say that the Bible is not real, it's not historical, it's not factual. Well, the Assyrian annals use a lot of what 
we read here in their own histories. So there is a lot of, from Tiglath-Pileser, talking about kings of Israel and talking about kings of the Bible exactly as it, it is described in the Bible. So it just brings that, bring firmness to the truth and veracity of Scripture. But anyway, king of Assyria comes down and he's, he's going to invade Israel. And what does Manahem do? He shakes in his boots. And he says, well, let me throw some money at him. Because everything is resolved with money, right? All problems go away with money. And in this case, it did. Throw some money at him, about 30 tons of silver, and the king says, cool, I'll leave you alone. But what he doesn't know is that he's going to end up being of a saw, or a servant, or of a saw state. It's basically a state with a puppet king. Assyria backs off, says, cool, I'll take your money, and I'll be taking your money from that one, and you're going to be my slave. All right? So I'll leave Leaves, King Manham stays there and enjoys the rest of his life there. He ends up getting murdered, but that's later on. Uh, what I want you to focus on is, did King Manahem go to Yahweh? Did King Manahem go to God? He thought, let me give him some money, and maybe this would be the best. Why? Because God never chose him to be king. He was an unfit leader to lead his people. And instead of rising up and confining in God, remember God was the one that destroyed the Egyptians? He said, I can do this myself, and I'll give him some money. Nonetheless, he becomes a vassal state, a servant-slave state. doesn't stop there. Read with me in the same chapter. Read with me verses 27 and on. Here's another king of Israel. Verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, there you go, that's pull again. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth, Makkah, Janoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all of the land of Nephtali, and carried the people captive to Assyria. So here's the context again. All of those nations or cities that were mentioned in that little brief segment, they're all in the north. So Israel is a northern state, and all of their northern states are being taken over by Assyria. So the, the power of Assyria is drawing closer and closer and closer over Israel, and Pekah is feeling the pressure. Pekah didn't like Assyria, obviously. Obviously, they're a nation that's taking over your land. You're obviously going to hate Assyria. So what does Pekah do? He says, well, these previous two kings before me, starting with Manahem, they were serving this king. Uh, let me do something else. Let me rebel against this king. And obviously, Pekah, being a king of Israel, knowing Yahweh, what does Pekah do? Obviously, he goes and he runs to Yahweh, and he goes for God for help, right? Wrong. What does Pekah do? He devises an alliance to go against Israel. I mean, to go against Assyria. Here it is. Assyria's coming down. Pekah, king of Israel, says, man, you know what? It's time for us to rebel. Pekah says, let's gather as much places or much countries around us to go up against Assyria. So one of the first people he contacts is Syria, which is a pagan nation, to go up against Assyria. Here's the logic in this. A pagan nation is going to take over our land. Let me go to another pagan nation to go up against this pagan nation. Let me align myself with this pagan nation so that we can defeat this pagan nation. Maybe we'll win. Pekka has a little bit more sense than that. Not only does he align himself with the pagan nation Syria, he also aligns himself with Judah in the south. 
Oh, Judah, they're part of our people too, so let's get them involved. And all three of us will go up against Assyria and win. Does it work? It does not. And there's a little parenthesis here because Pekah asks Judah to join the revolt, but Judah doesn't want to. Is it because Judah has a really good king, a king that fears God and says, no, Pekah, we should look after God and not in our own strength? Does Judah have a good king at this moment? Well, let's find out. Now, turn with me to 2 Chronicles. I'm glad. I hope you brought your Bible today. Second Chronicles, chapter 28. Let's see who's the king of Judah at this moment. Second Chronicles, chapter 28, verses 1, 1 and on. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, or the capital of Judah. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Wow, so we have another bad king in Judah, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So what did, what did Ahaz do? He copied Israel. Were Israel, all the kings that we just read up until this moment, were they bad or good? They were bad. So he copied them. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He made metal images for the bells, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Himnon, and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You get, so is this a good king or is this a bad king? The king killed his sons as an offering to the gods of other nations. Did Yahweh request that? Does Yahweh request, does God request Israel to sacrifice their sons? No. But he did because the other nations did. Verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So Ahaz obviously is not a good king. And now he's getting the pressure from Judah, I mean from Israel. He's evil, and in his heart is evil, and so Israel invades. Pekah, king of Israel, is upset. So instead of using Syria to invade Assyria, I know this might get confusing right now, and we're not in history class. I just want you to feel this. Pekah and Syria were going to fight against Assyria, but Judah did not want to join. So now Israel and Syria fight Judah, and they go and invade Judah, and if you keep reading in Chronicles, you'll see that they took away 120,000 of their men. They devastated Judah, and, and, and they were defeating them. So Ahaz was feeling this pressure. And this is, here again, Ahaz was a bad dude. But yet God sends a prophet like Isaiah to prophesy hope. Look at what Isaiah prophesied. So now go with me to Isaiah. Man, I hope you brought your Bible today. Isaiah chapter 7. Look what Isaiah the prophet says. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and, and you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of Washer's Field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you. So I'll stop right there. What is Isaiah prophesying? Hey, Ahaz, even though you're an evil king, do not be afraid. Don't worry. God's got this under control. Relax. God's got this under control. 
Does Ahaz listen? Does Ahaz say, thank you for knocking some sense into me. I was worried sick that these people were going to destroy us. What does Ahaz do? In spite of being affirmed by the prophet Isaiah himself, by God himself through the prophet Isaiah, he felt the pressure. And not only was Syria beginning to attack with Israel, some nations at their south, southern border, were beginning to attack. The Philistines and the Edomites were starting to cave in on them too. So now Judah is receiving pressure from the north and from the south. And Ahaz caves. So what does Ahaz do? He goes to God. Yeah, right, he doesn't. In chapter 28 of 2 Chronicles, verse 16, look what Ahaz does. At that time, if you go back to 2 Chronicles, chapter 28, at that time, verse 16, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. For the Edomites, there you go, those are the people in the, in, the, in the south, had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines, people in the south, had made raids on the cities in the Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Bethhamesh, Abijon, Gedoroth, Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages. So those are all villages in the south. What did... Ahaz do? He went to Tiglath-Pileser, or Pool. What did Tiglath III do to the kings of Israel? He made them slaves. And what does Ahaz do? What's, what's he thinking? Tiglath-Pileser will probably do differently with me. If I appeal to him for help, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, things will be much different. Is that the case? Look at what verse 20 says. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. The plan obviously backfired. Here it is. All the kings of Israel and one of the worst kings in Judah who supposedly know God, have gone running to Assyria for help, and Assyria keeps destroying them. They don't learn their lesson. And you got to remember, Isaiah tried to jump in to help. God sent Isaiah to help them. God sent his word to help them. And they still didn't listen it's interesting that God's word is put out and no one listens. God's word is spoken and no one pays attention. God's word is given and no one heeds instruction. It's kind of like 2019 when we have this wonderful book and people live like this. This is how we live. We have the word of God spoken, delivered, given. Even Sundays it is preached, but we live like this. And we end up looking like Ahaz. And we end up looking like Pekah and Menachem when we're going to other people for our source of security. Ahaz was attacked by Assyria. Tiglath was like, Eh, I'm just going to go hardcore on you guys and hurt them. And so what does Ahaz do? He learns his lesson and he asks God for forgiveness. Nope, that's not what he does. Ahaz, I won't go there, but in 2 Kings chapter 16 describes uh, Ahaz going to Egypt. No, sorry, they, he started worshiping the gods of Syria. Can you believe that? The, Syria was the one that was attacking them. So his logic was, you'll read this in, 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 you can read this in chapter 28 of Second Chronicles, 22 and 23. His logic was, since Syria beat us, 
Maybe their gods are more powerful than our God, and so I'm going to worship their gods. So he gave himself and Judah up to the worship of these pagan nations. Are these examples to follow? I think not. Final example. Sorry if you did not come for a history lesson, but this is important. This is the word of God. Second Kings. Final example. Second Kings chapter 17. Verse 1 through 5. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, not Hosea, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel and reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he was bad, but not that bad like the others. Verse 3. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. This is a successor of Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. There you go. He caves into Assyria. Another king of Israel caves in. And he becomes a slave of Assyria. To Salmaneser. He becomes a servant. But Hosea doesn't like it either. Obviously no one likes to be a slave. Hosea goes to God for help. Nope. Hosea doesn't go to God for help. Who does Hosea go to help for? Interesting. Number Verse 4. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to Saul, or the king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. So here's the interesting thing. Hosea did not go to God. Hosea went to Egypt for help. He's like, I don't want to give Assyria any more money. Let me, uh, who can help me? God, nah, God's too busy. Um, yeah, let me go to Egypt, the former country that had enslaved us already. Maybe they'll help us. How does that turn out? Not too good. Hosea was murdered by one of his other sons that went to usurp the throne because he did not trust God. See, this is, these are the sins of Israel and Judah. When we read chapter 8 of Hosea, this is what God is so upset about. Wouldn't you be upset? I mean, aren't you angry at Israel for everything that they're doing? Like, it gets me upset just knowing that because they kind of forgot what God was all about. It's interesting, in that prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz, we didn't finish it, but at the end of those two verses, he said that God was going to destroy Israel. So why was, Ahaz, why was Ahaz worried when God said he was going to destroy Israel? And that came true because Salmaneser's son, Sargon II, destroys Israel, or Samaria, in the year 722 B.C. Israel falls. Samaria falls. Israel is destroyed. There it is. Case closed. That's God's anger against Israel. From there on out, from the year 722 till now, Israel has no land. They're kicked out of their land. Samaria has been besieged, and now they are forced to leave into Assyria. They have no more land. But here's the interesting part. What is, go, go back to Hosea. Go back to chapter 8 in Hosea. And let's look at what, what we've been reading. Hosea chapter 8. Verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Already they, have, they are among the nations as a useless vessel. What were they to Assyria? Basals or servants or vessels. And God calls them useless. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. They have hired Assyria. They have hired Syria. They have hired Egypt. None of them 
were capable of doing any good. Though they, though they hire allies, in verse 10, among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the kings and the princes shall soon writhe because of their tribute. They will vanish. What was Israel supposed to do? Look at what chapter 10 says. Verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. What did they sow? They sowed the wind. They sowed treachery. What did they reap? The whirlwind. Chapter 12 of Hosea. Verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Israel and Judah have failed God miserably. And they are swallowed up. They have been destroyed. Case closed. Chapter 9 is a summary of everything that happens Verses 1 and 2, you, you don't have to look or, or read all of it. Just write it down. Verse 1 and 2, their joy has been eliminated. In chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, they are exiled from their land. They shall re, they, it's, verse 3 says, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. They have no more land. Verses uh, 7 through 9, they have lost a spiritual direction. They consider God's prophets as fools. Chapter 9, verses 10 through 16 talks about God limiting his blessings through childbirth. Their women could not give birth anymore. And you, you, you say, wow, that's an interesting thing. Well, if you look at Ahaz and, and if you look at uh, Menachem, they killed and took out the babies of pregnant women before they became king. That's how bad they were. So God punished them by not allowing their women to conceive or give birth because birth was a sign of blessing. All of this, and then in, in verse 17 of chapter, chapter 9, they, they are finally abandoned by God. Israel forgot God. You see the devastation that happens when you forget God? You, 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 you kind of figure things out for yourself. You, Israel was kind of trying to like grabbing at, at whatever that they could to help them. Maybe this will help. Maybe this will help. Maybe I can get by like this. Maybe I can figure out an alliance. Maybe my, my, my wisdom will, will, will make this better. Maybe we can get out of this mess. And it was never the case because all they had to do was trust and confine in their God. God was the one that was always faithful for them. All they needed was to trust him. But they sowed in the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. See, God came to them in the whirlwind. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 15 says, The Lord will come in fire like a whirlwind. The prophet Nahum says the same thing. The Lord by no means will have the guilty unpunished. I'm the whirlwind, and the storm is on its way. God came as the whirlwind. They thought they were going to sow with Egypt and Assyria and get the benefits. What they did get was God's righteous anger as a whirlwind. We're not designed to receive God's righteous anger. We're not for that. But when people of God, the people of God disobey and they reap in their disobedience, that's what they're going to get. That's what we get. You see, when we sin and we, we can ask for forgiveness, and, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's God listens to our forgiveness, but there's times in our, in our lives that God has to teach us that he is God and that we can't play God. We can't make him up and, and make up a false idol of God. 
We can't say, I'll keep living the same way, I'll keep sinning the same thing, I'll keep doing the same thing, and nothing's going to happen because God is anyway, God is good. God will come as a whirlwind. But you see, God always sends prophets. God always sends his word to warn. And if you're here this morning, and you've been sowing in the wind, before you reap or sow more, and before you reap God's whirlwind of righteous justice, remember that God is mighty to save. See, there's other prophets like Zephaniah that says, God is with us, and God is mighty to save. So before you go look for help somewhere else, before you say to yourself, God, I've done that. My parents have done that. I've done that. And it just doesn't work out. I, I'm just going to go somewhere else. My marriage, no one can help my marriage. No one can help my career choices. No one can help me in, these, in this area that I'm in. I'm stuck in the circumstance. No one can help me. Let me just go somewhere else. Before you say that, remember what the word of God says. He is mighty to save. Don't sow in the wind. Sow righteousness and love, and you'll reap God's favor. The only thing God requires of us is faith and trust in him. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, today we, we are humbled before your word. And you have shown us through your word how easy it is to be taken away, to be swiftly caught up in other ingenuities and plans. But today we come to you because you are mighty to save. Today we surrender our lives to you because you are mighty to save. Give, our, give this church, give these people, give us a heart that sows righteousness and love so we can reap the benefits of God's grace. Thank you for loving us and correcting us as your children. In Christ's name, amen.